a minor aside, for a D14, if you only have normal dice, what you do is you roll 2D20, and you're treating these as D10s because, you know, D10s are an aberration. They're not a, a what's the word, a phlegothrian solid. You, you can pronounce those things better than I can. But anyway, and, and I'm probably not drunk when I'm calling you, but the point is D10s are aberrations where D20s are, are true, you know, it's a, it's a true form, right? It really exists. So we're going to roll two D20s, but we're going to count them as D10s. We're going to ignore that 10 digit. And what you do is they're going to be different colors, and one of them you're really rolling as a D5. So one to two is one, three to four is two, and so on. And then you add those together and subtract one, and that gives you your one to 14 range of a D14. Easy peasy. A full year of DCC, and I never thought of that. I even used the D10 having it to get D5s. Wow, never thought of that. Hey Taylor, Jason here. So I saw the title of your latest episode and figured I'd call in and rant to you about it without even listening to it because that's what we do these days, right? No, I'm not going to do that. I listened to Pink Phantom's first call and I paused the episode when he starts asking about win or losing because I want to go back to this idea of is gold for XP railroading, only having gold for XP. And I think you did a great job defending it. I don't really have anything to expand on D&D, I guess what I would ask is, have, have you and your group, if gold for XP is not allowing the kind of play you're looking for, or you feel it's not allowing the, the kind of play you're looking for, have you and your group looked at other role-playing games? We have a plethora of role-playing games out there, and we have since the industry started. And, you know, gold for XP, strict gold for XP is not what you're looking for. Maybe Pendragon will fit your table better, right? Maybe a different game will fit your table better. Maybe Rollmaster. Um, it, it, I don't know. But maybe something based on BRP, where as you use your skills, your skills increase. So if your goal is to become the best swordsman in the world, well, BRP is not a bad way to do that because it's gonna, your swordsmanship is going to get better as you use your sword, right? Or Angar. You know, there's ton, tons of examples here. But my point is... If D&D isn't doing what you want, there are so many other games out there, maybe it's worth looking at those games to see. Because we have, I don't think we need to make D&D the only game we play. And I think different games shine in different aspects. And it's worth considering picking a different game if we have different goals in mind. And I think picking the right rule set for the kind of game we want to play is an important part of having a successful game. So we're not fighting the rules during the game, but the rules are enhancing the experience we're trying to achieve. Thank you for making that call. 
in my original response to the, uh, the the concept, I wanted to make that comparison, but I just after three or four tries, I couldn't do it because I did not have the breadth of experience or the example uh, that you could provide. And I pre- so I appreciate that tremendously. In at least one other case, I have told folks it's uh, it's okay not to be OSR. It's okay to play games that are not D and D because just like you said, they're usually games are made with a purpose and some of the elements of those games are going to work against you. It's kind of like 3.5. I played a lot lot of 3.5. 3.5 is built around combat. Uh, you can use it for RP and we have used it for RP but the XP system is combat focused and the, all of the class features if you look closely are combat focused. They have combat implications. And it's because the game is is kind of pushing you to play more combat encounters. That's what it's for. That's what its design was about. And that's okay. If that's the kind of game you want, that's going to be a great game for you to play. So I guess where I'm going with this, it would be a great idea to consider uh, what am I enjoying about this experience. And if that is close to D&D, house rule D&D, do it in a heartbeat. The system is fairly robust. It can handle it. But at the same time, if what I want to play is basic role-playing, and I've been meaning to download that, actually. Now that you remember, I think I remember that there is a free basic PDF of that that you can get. I have been meaning to download that for literally years, and I just haven't done it. But um, anyway, the, uh, the important part, if what you want to play is better served by another game, there's a good chance that there's a lot of support for that other game and saves you a lot of headache. Uh, you can ha- Even if you're house ruling that one, uh, you're house ruling it a lot less because you're going with the flow as opposed to uh, either against or, or at the best in parallel. So again, thank you for making that call. Good observation, good information. Greetings, Whisperer. It's Hobbs. I have a few different things I want to talk about over the last few episodes that I've listened to. First of all, I do believe that Gold is XP creates a very specific style of play, and that specific style is a mercenary attitude. Um, very rarely do these characters care about anything but gold. Hehe. <laughs> but gold. And so if you want to entice them through other means, it's not very easy. And then maybe you don't want to entice at all. I just know that if you're writing content or quest givers or what have you, um, making money be the only way creates a very specific style of play. Absolutely. Which I think that falls in line, I won't retread too much ground, uh, from the original episode that Pink Phantom was calling in about. XP is a mechanism to inspire player behavior, and what you give it out for in your game that you wrote or in a game that you're running will determine the motivation factor, just like you said. Is it a railroad style? I wouldn't say that, but I don't really think that's what the Pink Phantom was saying anyway. So I agree with him. I think it does create a style of play. Is it a railroad? I don't know. I also felt like your 
reasons for saying that he was incorrect with what he was saying were very rhetorical and coming from a very specific point of view, which is okay. True. To be clear, just in case, I do speak from the perspective of the mercenary mindset, the TSR, the Gygaxian standard, so to speak. So that that is the, definitely the perspective I'm coming from. And I, it was not my intention to imply that other mechanisms of advancement were not appropriate for gaming, but they may not be OSR, which again is fine. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was... <laughs> you should be playing with me more, for sure. And then we can come up with more stories like the uh, firebombed uh, scroll case. Uh, lastly, I wanted to mention you kind of touched on layers of play when you were talking about how White Hack um, comes across as opposed to a, a more traditional game where you're mostly on the character layer as opposed to this game design layer when you're having to you know, talk out how the mechanics work for the magic. So anyway, good job, my brother. I'll talk to you soon. Layers of play. I had not put two and two together in that regard, but I would be interested to know if mechanically fluid games like that where you have the negotiation factor I would be curious to know if those are more popular or less with people who design games, people who write games for fun. Do they enjoy the games where the mechanics are more fluid as a player? Food for thought. Thank you for calling in, and I will see you at the table. The virtual table, at least. Okay, so I listened to the call from Hobbs, and now I have to stop. So I'm going to – I was going to listen to all the calls and then send a message. I'm making my message longer by explaining all this. But anyways, <laughs> a great point about, you know, the the fiction kind of writing itself, you know, as you, as you kind of move through. That's, that's one of the joys of the game, right, is to say, well, hold on. How did this thing get here? Why is that there? And, yeah, I mean, why not? The scroll case is there because they haven't figured it out yet. They know it's dangerous, so they put it off to the side where hopefully nobody would grab it. But, of course, player characters come in there, they grab it, and kaboom! So, yes, fantastic. The same applies to children, for anyone wondering. You get your W-2 in the mail, put it on the counter so you don't uh, lose it, then boom! And I love that. I love that about the game. And I love just discussing, you know, how can we use things that happen in a, I don't want to call it random, although I think he did say it was from a random uh, role, but things that happen kind of in the improvisation or in the playing of the game. And then how can we look at those later when we're planning our games with more kind of solid things and let's say writing an adventure, how can we use those things and make them make sense on some level? If they even need to, why not just leave it up to the GM or DM? So long as they're whispering. Or yelling at a Bluetooth device, as may be the case. Hi. 
Hey there, it's John from the Red Dice Stories. Just been listening to your latest episode where you're talking about role play, as in the role of the party. And I thought it was really interesting because it's something I've definitely observed more in OSR gaming than in later editions and more modern gaming. You know, when you're always like, right, okay, who's, who's the fighter? Who's going to be the support character? Who's got a back when we get injured and stuff like that? So I definitely think there's a strong case for role referring to the role of the party as you said in the episode it's curious too because i feel like it tried to make a comeback right around the fourth edition era when uh the game tried to reinvent itself as an mmo uh into the least beloved edition of the game (laughs) Uh, the uh 4e your class and your role were very very defined and they had very mechanical implications and so it feels like at that point the role as role in the party was making a comeback but uh then pathfinder happened and fifth edition came out and we kind of reverted to the mishmash also enjoyed the stuff about the procedural generation of elements during a role-playing session i tend to use those myself mainly because as one of your callers said it frees my mind up to think about the more difficult things and it's a sense of comfort and order having a a procedure that you can follow through and you get familiar with i know for myself if i just sit down and sort of look at a blank screen or a piece of paper my mind will go in a million different directions at once whereas if i've got a procedure that i know i follow xyz etc to get to a conclusion i can guarantee i'll follow it And sometimes, depending on if there's a random element built into the procedure, it might come up with some cool stuff that I wouldn't have thought of in a million years. Absolutely. That part of procedural generation, the part where it comes up with stuff that we would not have come up with if we were just writing it blank slate, favorite part. And I know certain friends of mine who will run games, zero prep, just improvising, just using the uh, stocking, procedures and occasionally just using the dungeon generation procedures so they'll have uh, not possibly the one out of uh, the first edition dungeon master's guide possibly other guides uh, or to other tools but yeah procedurally generating the adventure on the fly which i you i was able to do in in the long long ago but i'm way too rusty to attempt it now so thanks very much. Keep up the good work. Very much enjoyed the episode. Take care. Thank you for calling, John. Uh, I did see a couple articles pop up on your Substack, and I do know between this message and now I've seen at least one episode of the Red Dice Diaries pop up in my podcatcher. So I know I think you had gotten a little bit busy there for a bit, gone a little bit quiet, but I'm glad you're back in the groove. So hearing your voice, always a good thing. Again, thank you for calling in. Hey there, Taylor. This is Nick from the Don't Split the Party Discord. Been listening for a while, first time calling in. You mentioned in your last episode that you enjoy substituting coin hoards for items of the same value, but there's another consideration. When a party finds a coin hoard, their first thought should be, can we take this with us? 100 gold and 20,000 copper of the same value, but they're very different experiences, and I think that should be preserved by the substitution. I agree. 
on the Bandits Keep Discord, which I'm not sure if you're on. I'll check when I get home, but... He did not check. The important part, the uh, on the Bandits Keep Discord, this had come up because uh, Daniel had talked a little bit about doing the same thing, which is substitutionary treasure, which is more interesting than the standard gold coin hoard. And in so doing, one of the things that I said I was going to do is I was going to try to look and see if I had any inspirations for that. And regrettably, I have not been able to find it. I don't know if I just lost some bookmarks. I need to do that pocket. Firefox keeps telling me I need to do pocket where I put my bookmarks in the cloud, but I'm just, I just don't. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I've lost bookmarks somewhere along the way, but I was unable to find any of my inspiration for this. And so, but important part, uh, one thing I always do is preserve the encumbrance. So if treasure is worth 10,000 gold pieces, then the encumbrance is going to be in the vicinity of 10,000 coin weight. That preserves the balance of the game. So while it may be easy to say, oh, you get the monkey's head statue and that's worth 10,000 copper uh, or gold, sorry, 10,000 gold, um, that's a huge difference. The monkey's head may be 10 coin weight, and that's a huge difference. That's it. That's for when you roll jewelry. Uh, I, hey, I just inspired a new segment, alternative jewelry. <laughs> but second thing I always try to do, after preserving the value and the encumbrance weight, is to try to make it interesting. So why is it there? So maybe I am in a... Uh, crypt or a catacomb and the walls are lined with skulls uh, kind of like the crypt underneath uh, Paris why is the treasure there so I'll put uh, so I roll a 5,000 silver piece treasure 2,500 skulls now have coins in their eye sockets uh, to get across Charybdis yes yes bribe the ferryman got it but the moral of the story here is not only is it important mechanically to make the treasure work uh, so as not to diminish the resource management aspect of the experience, but also to make it thematic and a challenge. Load-bearing treasure, that's a fun one. Specialized treasure, that is where you would need to find someone to buy it, uh, where it's worth a lot, but it's worth nothing unless you can get it to that specialist. Useful treasure. So not necessarily a magic item, but maybe antique clothing that the party, if donned, would get a bonus on reactions to something deeper in the dungeon, something that will make them not want to sell it. So lots of opportunity to take 10,000 gold pieces and turn it into something interesting. Problem is, doing that ain't easy. Around a year ago, I crunched and ordered all the mundane PHB items, plus a bunch of commodities by the ratio of their weight and value, and sorted those into buckets. So you can see that field plate is worth its weight in platinum, more or less, and a merchant's meal is worth its weight in copper. So you can roll up a hoard of copper and silver, and you might think, ah, maybe the high-level party is going to scoff at this. You can replace those with rations, weapons, drinks, illumination, consumables, textiles, sugar, hides, and now it's a bit more intriguing. A lot of opportunities to hide magic items in plain sight, too. That is something I have not done. Now, I have done weapons and ammunition before, but I have never thought about other consumables. Now, I, I, I have put 
stuff like torches and incense in dungeons before, but I don't know if I've done it as part of the stocking process for treasure. That's interesting. I may have to think about that. It's still a work in progress. I have to add more grave goods to the list, and I have to add the Unearthed Arcana items in there yet. But you can find it on Rick's server under Mundane Treasures. Brad and James will have tested it out a bit. Their players liked finding food in the dungeon and having some beers together at the end of the adventuring day. Good results. Have a good day, and happy gaming. That I will do. I'm going to head over, now that you mentioned it, I'm going to check it out. Uh, and I'm also going to put a link to the Don't Split the Party Discord in this show notes for anybody who is interested. Now, thank you for calling in. Excited to associate a handle with a voice. Hey, what's up, Taylor? So I'm listening to your latest episode with the calls from Pink Phantom and Jason, where they're talking about gold for XP and milestones. And Jason mentioned that milestones sort of show up for the first time in BX. And you're saying you don't know if those are milestones because milestones are a story point or a character accomplishing a goal. And I was like, oh, so like the goal of getting a bunch of treasure? (laughs) Isn't that a milestone? (laughs) Isn't it all actually milestones, man? The milestone is collecting enough gold to level up. That's the milestone. (laughs) As far as I can tell, it's milestones all the way down, man. No, but in all seriousness, anytime you limit yourself to just one source for XP, be it gold or milestones or killer monsters or whatever, you are going to be limited because that is the only way for XP. So I don't know, man. That's just the way I see it. Anyway, dude, take it easy. Peace out. You are correct. Uh, I could say I agree with you, but instead I'm going to say you are correct. And while I went through a little bit of that on the previous episodes. I won't retrod the same ground, but I will add to the conversation by saying this exact concept, the limiting your XP is going to inform behavior and table experience, is why I fell in love with the LBB D&D. So what is D&D for overall? Well, you're imitating the source material. You're trying to recreate those classic sword and sorcery adventures. You're trying to be the wizard of the dying earth. You're trying to be the reaver in the world of Conan. Uh, it, and it does that pretty well. You have magic items, you have treasure, you have adventure, and it's motivating those in two primary ways. You have the treasure XP, and you also have the monster XP. The monster XP in the original edition is 100 or so per hit die, and the treasure XP is one for one for gold pieces, and nothing for magic items. So how does this reinforce the fiction? It provides a reason for you to keep the magic items and use them, uh, because you get the utility from their function. Uh, It gives you that motive to get into the dungeon and pull the gold out and then facilitate the end game, the Conan the Conqueror uh, funding armies to fight each other. And then the monster XP, that's the kicker. In Greyhawk, they nerf monster XP to narrow the focus. But in the original edition, you get 100 XP per hit die or so uh, for overcoming monsters. Note not killing them, just overcoming them. So if you trick them and force them into a pit or bypass them if you have a generous referee, that gives you an opportunity to get the XP 
without having engaged in combat. So that is your Paul Anderson thinking outside the box to get rid of the werewolf. That is the appendix in. And for that reason, I'm a big fan. Good to hear your voice. Thank you for calling in, and peace out. Hello, hi. This is Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz, and I am the host of Dungeon Master's uh, Handbook Podcast. I'm a first-time caller to your, uh, or first time I'm calling to your uh, podcast, and I just listened to your episode on gold for XP. Um, three points I wanted to make. One, um, I have been long a convert and an advocate that experience and levels are an abstraction that uh, encompasses a lot of different aspects of a person, one of which is the person's influence and you should call it political power, economic power, um, influencing power, celebrity status, what have you. Hey, that's how real life influencers work too. I mean, look at that Shadow Dark Kickstarter. Uh, nope, bad Taylor, bad. And the evidence for that is based on as early as Chainmail and OD&D, where you were calling someone a hero and a superhero, and they would have specific abilities that went beyond just, hey, I'm skilled at a sword or I'm you know, powerful in magic. They could influence creatures to run away from them because they were so powerful. Uh, these higher level uh, uh, characters would attract people to them because again, based on their influence, based on their power, based on who they are. And so that's something that I try to reflect in my games is that, you know, under fourth level, under, you know, when you're not a hero, you're known locally. When you're a hero, you're known by a region. When you're a superhero, you're known across all of the lands and so on. Talking about uh, level reflecting influence as well as uh, a bunch of other things, that's interesting. I'm reminded years ago I allowed players to spend XP to change the dice, almost like a meta currency. So you would lose the advancement in a sense, but you could save your own life doing it. Um, I don't remember the exact specifics for what the exchange rate for XP to modifying your dice were, but I had an internal mechanic where I was tracking all of that, where if uh, for every 100 XP you spent, you got a 1% renown point. And the renown was a flat percentage that people would recognize you. And depending on what they recognized you for would influence reactions. And it was all manners comp so complicated as to reflect a kid who had entirely too much time to spend on his, his RPGs. And so gold then is merely one element by which they amass that power. You know, the the dollars uh, <laughs> dollars speak. And, you know, someone who has a lot of gold, someone who's amassed a lot of treasure and the ability to influence the area around them or hire people for large armies, they're going to have a lot of power. And I think that that's an aspect of... 
what experience, maybe perhaps unfortunately named, but they, you know, they had what they had, um, you know, that, that's where that comes into play. Um, it's interesting that, you know, you were talking about the treasure being the reward and then, you know, the, the XP becomes the award and that's, you know, how you quote unquote win at D&D. You know, if you consider Traveler, Traveler is the, the sci-fi game does not have specifically experience and leveling up. After you've generated your character, you kind of are who you are. I thought I remembered that. I was arguing, not arguing, but I was asking, didn't Traveler not really have character advancement in the sense? And I was told, oh, no, you can advance. No, I remembered playing Traveler and essentially being who I was. Thank you for confirming. <laughs> there are mechanisms by which maybe you can gain additional skills, whether temporarily or you know, through long study permanently. But the reward in Traveler is through the collection of wealth and spaceships and influence and connections and so on. Um, an interesting take, but I think it's one that can inform D&D as well and make you consider, not you specifically, but even, you know, general, make folks consider, you know, the, the treasure, while it feels like money, it's a tool. And it itself is a resource by which you can do other things and reach whatever goals you have as a character. Curiously, the Traveler campaign that I had played in uh, kind of fell apart. We didn't play it very much. I think we only played one or two campaigns in it, and it didn't ever last long. There, It couldn't hold the uh, attention of the group. This was my college gang, so I guess we must have been more uh, advancement hungry. Uh, we didn't figure out how to win at Traveler. Makes me wonder. May have to. May have to. Was it that we were like that, or was it that the we just didn't scratch the itch? We'll have. I may have to reach out to old buddies and see if they even remember playing. Finally, you were talking about milestones. And while, yes, milestones weren't a recorded or published part of D&D until we had the uh, Dragonlance and so on, it isn't exactly an old or a new concept. Um, Jeff, Jeff Berry, uh, Kyrene Bacall, who played in Professor M.A.R. Barker's uh, original Tecumon game in the uh, mid-70s. So that's where the corruption began. <laughs> but more more seriously, that ties in pretty neatly to your concept of the uh, influence aspect. That's uh, a perfect parallel for influence as an aspect of level. Has spoken about a lot, and, and I've blogged about this as well, about how Professor Barker would award levels based on things that uh, characters had accomplished for their factions or for their city or for their church, cult, religion, what have you, a type of milestone. You go out, you save this priestess from the clutches of our rival cult, and I will reward you by making you a third level uh, doohickey in my group. Okay. There you go. That's a milestone. And 
it was one of those things that was subjective to the DM to, you know, uh, Professor Barker's, uh, you know, what what he set out for the goals of that faction. But it was definitely a milestone and it was definitely something that was used then. And I actually use this quite often in my games uh, for clerics and for folks who align themselves with organizations that they can gain influence levels and power. By helping to, uh, you know, do things that benefit their uh, faction or church or what have you. Anyway, uh, I'm going to work my way through your back catalog, so you might get a couple more comments from me. But uh, interesting uh, podcast. Thanks a lot, and game on. Thank you for calling in, Michael. Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see the ping from you on Discord, and I was doubly su pleasantly surprised to see how big it was. Uh, you put a lot of thought into the material. You put a lot of effort into the call. I appreciated your insight, and I will look forward to your subsequent call-ins. And in the meantime, I will look forward to your continued podcasting. For folks who have not been on the uh, on the anchor circuit, so to speak, Michael has been podcasting recently, having caught the chainmail and OD and debug. I know, Michael, you've been playing for uh, a long time. You've been playing OD&D longer than I have, uh, at least. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, he's been putting out a bunch of episodes talking about uh, resources and experiences. and So, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying that in the, in the meantime. So, again, thank you for calling in. And that wraps up this episode of the Whispering GM Podcast, an independently operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This License. Some sound effects are retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit.co royalty-free music license. Others are retrieved from Pixabay, made available under the Creative Commons Zero. Theme music is Raw Power, licensed through PlayOnLoop.com. Parties interested in or with questions regarding the podcast are encouraged to reach out via the methods provided on the Clearing Square Ring Mail blog. Thank you for listening, and delve on.